How much is the Cato Daily Podcast worth to you? We certainly enjoy putting it together for you, and we know from all the positive feedback that it's an important part of many of our listeners' days. If you value our distinctly libertarian perspective, I hope you'll consider joining our new podcast sponsor program. If you visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor, you can learn about various levels of support and the benefits you'll enjoy as a Cato sponsor. For example, if you become a patron sponsor by giving $1,000 or more, I'll personally thank you on the podcast, and you'll get the regular benefits of being a Cato patron as well. If you prefer, you can donate in a friend or family member's name as well. It's the perfect gift for someone who values liberty but has everything else. Learn more about the benefits of becoming a podcast sponsor at cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And as always, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 23, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. As millions of Americans head to see the latest installment of the now Disney-fied Star Wars franchise, Disney itself is plotting its own path toward competing in online streaming. Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation Magazine, discusses how and if the decades-long copyright terms are affecting this market. Disney, it appears, uh, unless there's some intervention at the, from the federal government uh, will acquire the bulk of 20th century Fox's assets, that is, old shows, uh, movies, uh, output of 20th century Fox over the years that have been held by that company. And Disney is eyeing the possibility of getting the technology right of creating a streaming service that will compete with Netflix and uh, Hulu and Amazon Prime and these other uh, streaming services. And my thought was, you know, if, if in a saner world where copyright at some point <laughs> expired, uh, you know, maybe this, this market might actually be more competitive. It would compete on the margin of the quality of the delivery service uh, rather than on uh, what do you own that is exclusive to you that only you can show to people if they're subscribing to your service. So how fair is that? Well, there are two issues going on in this case, uh, and they we've talked about them before, and they're both very intellectually interesting, and the debate about them will probably go on for a long time. And those two issues are, uh, what are the trade-offs between the incentives need to of uh, uh, incent creators to create, i.e. the royalties that come from copyright and how long should copyright go on and should it ever end. Uh, the 1998 Millennium Copyright Act extended copyright to the life of the author plus 70 years, and it had been as uh, much less than that in previous iterations of the law. And the main, and everyone knows that the main a lobbyist and proponent for that copyright extension was Disney. So, so we see the so certain uh, parts of libertarian thought kind of worry about this treating intellectual property uh, and, and giving it almost infinite life, somewhat like land or real property. The second issue that we have also talked about in other podcasts is. The long tradition, starting in British common law, and this isn't just U.S. regulation, but British common law, of the notion of a common carrier, and and this 
i.e. should a shipper of something be able to own the things that they ship? And this manifested itself with stagecoaches and then railroads. And, and in the U.S. still, and in Britain, railroads cannot legally own cars and products that they ship, and, and they do not. They just ship things. But in the telecom version of this, we are getting vertical integration between the owners of fiber optic capacity and the internet and content that is now streamed to people via the internet. And that is raising both the cultural fears that have 500 years of history over common carriers and economic analysis of, of that as well. All right. So what, what do we know in general about copyright and the value that or the rents that copyright delivers to people who are holders of it? Well, we mostly have uh, – well, there's conventional analysis uh, which says that, that copyright is – creates inefficiency uh, because it imposes prices higher than marginal costs on the users of content. Uh, there are some heterodox findings, however, and one of them was published in regulation in the uh, spring 2009 issue by Stan Leibowitz, who's an economist at University of Texas, Dallas. He did an interesting study of bestsellers, some of which had copyright because they were newer and some of which were very old works which did not have copyright uh, because they were old. He then did a regression uh, controlling for whether they were paperback or hardback, and he had dummy variables for publishers. Some publishers are high-end and some are low, and some are leather-bound and some weren't, so he controlled for all that. And then he tried to ascertain whether copyright per se increased the price of books. And his conclusion was, in a standard regression, where all the, and by the way, he had a list of titles from 1895 to 1940. So he had a comprehensive database of of books. And he concluded in a normal regression with all the titles weighted equally that the coefficient on copyright was zero, so that it had no effect. When he weighted the units of analysis by sales to give a weight to, to things that had that were very popular, um, he found that copyright had a positive 15% effect on prices. And then he did separate analysis to try to ascertain whether the rents went to publishers or went to authors, and he concluded that the publishers got none of that, and all the rents or profits went to the authors of those works. So then what we're to conclude from that is that uh, publishers are very, very concerned about finding the next big book and aren't that concerned about uh, uh, books that have, that have stood the test of time? That's correct. I mean, all the money in publishing comes from blockbusters and all the money in movies comes from blockbusters. And those profits are dissipated on the search for the next blockbuster. As you know, I mean, there's what, 360, I think there's a movie per day last year in the United, 360 some odd movies were released in the U.S. in 2016. And, you know, like 300 of them didn't make money and 65 did. <clears throat> but the 65 that made money made a lot of money. And so that money then pursues this, this search for uh, blockbusters. All right. So then what are we to take away from Disney's push into this market and whether or not it has any or should have any implications for people who are uh, may want to prevent that merger out of some antitrust concern? 
Are you saying that D- Disney doesn't actually stand to make any additional uh, rents, any uh, economic profits on well, this catalog that they purchased? What's interesting is I am pers- I am not aware of of so translating this Leibowitz analysis where authors are and creators are people to where an author is a corporation like the Disney um, the the creation of Disney characters and movies were done by people but they were employees of a corporation and so the rights to all these things are owned by the Disney corporation not um, Dan Brown the author right so the, the the concern with I mean Disney's concern is whatever profits exist uh, in the sale of its stuff, um, it does not want to share them with the pipes, the shipper, the internet, and the the war over whether railroads should get money or coal mines should get money is now a war over whether uh, Comcast or A and T and T in effect share in the rents of the of the uh, lucrative content that they ship. And Disney is by vert- is saying it's going to start a streaming service and uh, it wants to ship its own content over the internet uh, rather than, in effect, distribute that content to uh, others that then make contracts to ship it in, in various ways. Okay, so to the extent that there are profits in these older catalogs of of shows and movies, they want to make sure they're getting all of it. That is correct. That's my and, and, that's my analysis anyway. And the way copyright is structured, uh, having a larger catalog creates a larger incentive for you to uh, own the means of distribution in addition to production. Yes, absolutely. The, I mean, the Disney is has a huge, as they say, you know, back catalog. If it were a publisher of books, it would have uh, a large catalog uh, of existing publications. And Disney certainly has that with Mickey Mouse and various animated characters uh, and movies uh, aimed at, at families and children. We talked about... Uh monopolies uh, in a recent uh, Cato Audio recording. But uh, in this case, copyright, of course, is a monopoly. It's a government-granted monopoly. It's explicit over the content that has been uh, created. But is there anything in here that should be of interest to government regulators that say, oh, we're not sure that this is a, a good deal for consumers. Well, if we translate the Leibowitz analysis to films, it's trying to, I mean, it's, it's even hard for me technically to try to understand what it would mean for Disney not to print movies having Mickey Mouse in them. In other words, so when books go, uh, when the copyright on books ends, what happens is that you can have the content of the book remains the same, but then many printers print them, if I could use that analogy. So what does it mean for Mickey Mouse to exist but uh, a, a generic uh, movie maker, not Disney, actually makes the film, if you will, or something? And then try to put your head around that, and it's sort of like, hmm, I'm not sure what... So having... In other words, multiple copies of old Disney movies, some of which are Disney and some of which are not, what what would that – which is would be equivalent to what Leibowitz studied, right, which is the books that uh, 
have multiple publishers because they're out of copyright versus ones that do not because they're in copyright. Um, it's hard to know what that means um, from a movie perspective and whether the prices would change because the content of the movie remains the same, but somehow it doesn't have a Disney copyright at the end of it. Uh, so. Right. right. It, it, you could make use of those characters and create something new, but then you have to go to all of the effort of actually making something new rather than just packaging it. Correct. And and it appears, I mean, I, I, I'm at a loss to sort of know uh, how the the market for animators and the market for animation creation and the market for storytelling, what those look like and what it would mean um, to, in effect, um, end, copy, end this or change the Millennium Copyright Act so that Disney wouldn't have ownership of its characters. Peter Van Doren is editor of Regulation Magazine. This holiday season, consider supporting the Cato Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by visiting cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more of the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.